1: I don't want kids to just think that drag is dress up and that it's pretty and that it's entertaining. I want them to know that it is disruptive and that it is about asking questions and imagining a more just and fabulous world, and that it it does have teeth behind it as well.
2: Welcome back to Working. I'm your host Isaac Butler, and I'm
0: your other host June Thomas.
2: June, it is always a delight. Uh, <laughs> who did you speak to for this week's Working?
0: Well, first of all, Sam Isaac Sam, the voice we heard at the beginning of the show belongs to drag performer Lil Miss Hot Mess.
2: Amazing. And what led you to want to talk to Lil Miss Hot Mess?
0: So there have been so many attacks on drags and attempts to ban it of late. And I was reminded that not only is drag an art form, it's also a way that a lot of people make their living. So... It felt like a good time to talk to a drag artist about their creative process. And Lil Miss Hot Mess is a storied queen. She has performed on Saturday Night Live, among other places. But she's also an academic, an author of children's books about drag and an activist who's on the board of Drag Story Hour. So she seemed like a great source on this topic.
2: We should also probably mention that, you know, both in the above and throughout this interview, you'll be referring to Little Miss Hot Mess by her stage name and, you know, using uh, she, her pronouns. Can you talk a little bit about that choice?
0: Yeah. So, you know, you said stage name. And to me, at least, you know, a drag performer's persona is stage name you know it's separate from their non-drag identity so just as if i were interviewing marilyn monroe which you know am i doing that next week i can't remember Mm. but i would insist (laughs) yes and um you know i wouldn't insist on calling her norma jean mortensen and if I'm addressing a drag queen, I'll use her performance name and pronouns that are appropriate to the character. And, you know, in other parts of her life, Lil Miss Hot Mess is a professor. If I were a student wanting to talk about my homework or if I had a question about their scholarship, I'd probably refer to them as Dr. Kornstein rather than Lil Miss Hot Mess, even though Lil Miss Hot Mess is really hard to say. Mm-hmm. But if we're talking about drag, I'm going to use her stage name.
2: That's great. And of course, we should also mention that our Slate Plus members do get a little something extra. We normally say in their stocking, but maybe we should say (laughs) in their sparkly high-heeled shoes this week, right?
0: Exactly. No, totally. So for many years now, Loomis Hot Mess has been involved in fighting back against attacks on drag, the number and intensity of which have really spiked in the last year or so. So We talked about that and also how she felt when Senator Marco Rubio, for it is he, used an image of Little Miss Hot Mess at a drag story hour in one of his campaign ads.
2: Well, that sounds amazing. And if you are a Slate Plus subscriber, that will be waiting for you at the end of this episode. If you are not a Slate Plus subscriber, though, I mean, what are you waiting for? Don't you want to hear about how it feels to have America's thirstiest senator (laughs) use an image of you in one of his horrendous campaign commercials? Come on, subscribe today. Your Slate Plus subscription will get you full access behind the paywall on the mothership, bonus segments on shows like ours, and actually whole exclusive episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood. Subscribe today. Once again, that's at slate.com slash working plus. All right, now let's listen in on June's conversation with Little Miss Hot Mess.
0: Lil Miss Hot Mess, thank you so much for joining us on Working. I suspect most of our listeners are very familiar with drag and drag personae these days, but just for folks who don't know anything about drag, can you talk about your identity as Lil Miss Hot Mess, which is how I'll be addressing you today? Um, How do you think of Lil Miss Hot Mess? Is she an aspect of your personality, a performance character, or something else entirely?
1: For me, I think about... Little Miss Hot Mess is really just an extension of myself. I know some drag performers do think about creating a character in a, you know, fictional, intentional sort of way. But for me, yeah, it's really just, um, you know, when I put on my drag, I feel like in some ways, I'm accentuating certain parts of my personality, I'm sometimes putting on kind of a suit of sparkly armor that allows me to get away with things that I might not be able to get away with in my everyday life. And I will say that, you know, for me personally, I think the parts of my personality that come out the most are kind of, on the one hand, like a teenage girl preparing for her bat mitzvah or for a talent show. (laughs) And on the other hand, like her kind of tacky, enthusiastic grandmother who's, you know, cheering along and you can hear all of her bangle bracelets clapping.
0: <laughs> That's really all human life just encapsulated <laughs> in one very sparkly, well made up persona. Um, Thank you. Many years ago, when drag was still, I think, pretty far from the mainstream, there was a how to figure out your drag name meme, I think even maybe avant la lettre of meme, but <laughs> was it like middle name and the first street you lived on? And I'm curious how you came up with your drag name.
1: Well, I like to say that I earned it uh, in my in my early (laughs) years, uh, my early late teens, early 20s, when I had first started drinking and going out and participating in the nightlife and had probably a few too many Long Island iced teas and other (laughs) similar (laughs) boozy beverages. And, you know, after a night out um, that I hardly remembered, some friends christened me Little Miss Hot Mess. And yeah, when I started performing and I I realized I needed a name to go up on stage, that was the first thing that popped into my head was Little Miss Hot Mess. Um, (laughs) And now, you know, now that I've matured a little bit, uh, mellowed out a little bit, I like to say that, you know, I'm less of a hot mess and I'm sort of more commenting on what a hot mess the world can be around
0: us. How did you first become interested in drag and when? You you mentioned when you were a teenager and like, was it so early? Was it always something that you thought you'd end up doing at some point in your life?
1: In some ways, I always wanted to do drag since I was a child, Um, even before I really knew what a drag queen was. You know, I was always that kid who liked to dress up and who liked to perform. You know, I would like I, I was the kid who would dress up in my mother's clothes and, you know, clawed around in her high heels, even though they didn't fit me and (laughs) put a towel on my head, you know, pretend like I was wearing a wig and do like mini productions of musicals on our back porch for the neighbors and things like that. So in that way, yeah, always, it was always part of me. And I think it wasn't really until college. I mean, college is when I came out as queer in general and started learning a lot more about queer culture. And so Yeah, I mean, I think I was instantly attracted to drag because it allowed for that performance. It allowed for that gender play. Um, But it wasn't until I moved to San Francisco after college and really got to see, you know, a thriving drag scene in action that I really wanted to um, be part of it. And I should say my first foray into drag... I actually wasn't in feminine drag. Uh, I was in a production that we called Hogwarts Express the Musical, which was sort of a <laughs> drag retelling of the Harry Potter stories through a queer lens. Um, and I played Neville Longbottom, which is, oh my god, you know, basically a drag name in and of itself.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about some of the how-tos of drag. When you were first starting out, what did you need to learn? And what were the kind of the big areas of kind of drag expertise that you needed to accumulate?
1: I mean, I think to maybe start with the obvious, you know, there's the learning just how to put on the drag, um, which is something that definitely took me quite some time to learn the true intricacies of, you know, when I first started, my drag was very, what we might call Walgreens, you know, it was very kind of uh, cheap makeup, a lot of wet and wild, um, a lot of thrift store clothes, um, even thrift store wigs, which in hindsight, I don't really recommend, but, uh, you know, got the job done at the time. So, yeah, there's there's kind of the aspect of, of how to put together different kind of looks. And, you know, I will say that even though I sort of joke about the thrift store drag, it, it really, it made drag accessible. You know, I think mm-hmm. now um, now that drag has become more mainstream and in some ways more professionalized, there are kind of more expectations often around, you know, You have to have a styled wig, you have to have custom clothes, you have to be wearing nails, you know, all these different things. And the drag that I came up in, it really was very, you know, DIY, very catch as catch can. Um, Being able to just pick stuff up at the thrift store uh, and recycle it was really uh, essential to being able to participate at all. But I think the other piece that I think I, I had personally a little bit more intuitively was just the sense of of how to perform, of how to hold yourself on stage, and really of how to conceive of a number to think about, you know, the sort of narrative arc of a number, whether that is just giving a lip sync and finding those moments of inflection and the moments of you know giving more or pulling back or mm-hmm. or you know just creating that drama. Um, You know, coming up through that Harry Potter drag, I worked with a lot of drag kings. um, And one of the jokes was sort of always that, like, drag kings tended to have either a million people on stage or a million props with them, you know, in creating these very kind of elaborate numbers. And so I built on that a lot too, like thinking about, in some ways, the aspect of storytelling through performance.
0: I'm sorry to say that I have never seen you perform. So could you tell me maybe describe one of those early shows. So you're talking about this early San Francisco era of Little Miss Hot Mess. What kind of situations were you performing in? What was the scenario? And then what would you do?
1: Yeah, so I officially got my start at a club called T-Shack, um, which was organized by drag legend Hicklina, um after I was doing uh, Hogwarts Express the Musical. And that that was this legendary club. It had grown sort of out of other equally legendary clubs in San Francisco that all came from a bit more of, again, a kind of like punk, artsy, DIY kind of lineage. It wasn't mm-hmm. drag that was specifically trying to be pretty, although many people doing it were pretty and various forms of glamorous. Um, but really, you know, it was about often being shocking, about being in your face, you um, about telling a story, about making a social commentary. And I first started at their annual event called uh, Star Search, which was, you know, based on the TV show and -hmm. and basically an opportunity for new performers uh, to take the stage. And it was a competition. um, And I'm sad to say that I did not win, although I am still convinced that I placed second, even though (laughs) there wasn't an official runner-up.
0: First runner-up, yes. Yes, yes.
1: always. Uh, But... For that performance, I did a little medley to um, tell him the Celine Dion, Barbra Streisand duet that went into Rick James' Super Freak. Um, <laughs> and I I did it on ice skates because uh, I had been a childhood figure skater. So I knew my way around ice skates. You know, I was wearing my, my plastic guards. <laughs> and yeah, the whole conceit was that, you know, kind of as I was I won't say child prodigy, but I was, you know, this, this kid striving for the best in this competitive sport. And so, yeah, so I I did jumps and spins and things on the ice or on the stage, not on the ice. Uh, I (laughs) fell quite a bit. In many ways, I actually regret that I didn't fall more. I think if I had (laughs) full on fallen off the stage, I would have won, but, but yeah, that was my, that was my opening performance. (laughs) Other numbers that I did, you know, um, this was around 2008. And one of one of the numbers that I'm still kind of most proud of and that I've done versions of since uh, was a number as Hillary Clinton. Because oh that was goodness. the time when she was running in the primary against Barack Obama and John Edwards. Uh, and so it was another medley uh, to tunes from Gypsy, the musical. <laughs> um, so it started off with the Gotta Get a Gimmick number um, where I had backup people playing Barack Obama and John Edwards. Um, And then it goes into Rose's turn, which is like, you know, canon of of musical theater and all about this woman's ambition, and, you know, kind of her getting her moment in the spotlight. Um, And so that was really a commentary, sort of both on, you know, Hillary Clinton as you know, as this political figure who was getting attacked for being too ambitious, um, mm-hmm. but also sort of trying to critique what I think, you know, was some kind of genuine overambition or or uh, phoniness in sort of the ways that she was making political positions at the time. So yeah. so those are just some of the kinds of numbers I've done. You know, I I also have done numbers about, uh, I forget which one it was, but there was a big oil spill in like 2010. Um, I've done numbers, other numbers about electoral politics. um, Yeah, all sorts of things.
0: Wow. Now, so I am of an age where there was a period where a lot of feminists were down on drag queens or on drag generally, because at the time Mm -hmm. there were only drag queens. Now (laughs) we have a more broad view of drag. You know, they were making fun of women. No, I think we've we've all kind of evolved from that. That seems like a very kind of elementary or basic position, but this is where I have to ask you: What kind of commentary are you making? Why do you want to don these? Kind of Walgreens looks. Uh, what's it all about, little Miss Hot Mess?
1: What is it all about? That's a great question, and I I should say just clearly for the record, I have mainly upgraded from my Walgreens looks. Um, although <laughs> I do it. still Don't wear me. Wet and Wild lipstick because I do think it has some of the best color. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, it's it's a great question, and I will say it's something that still comes up. I mean. I get a lot of hate mail from the right, but I also sometimes get concerned letters from the left about drag performers' portrayal of women. Um, There was even just a a school in Texas, a a university, that canceled a drag show recently, allegedly on the grounds that it was um, mocking women, although I think Mm. that was just cover for other politics. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I've always felt that drag... I mean, if anything, it's a celebration of women. It's a celebration of femininity. Um, and it's really sort of a, a critique and a commentary on gender stereotypes more broadly and on the gender binary. You know, I think, I think one of the things that drag shows is that nobody owns masculinity. Nobody owns femininity. That these are, you know, different ways of identifying and expressing oneself um, that we can all tap into in various ways. And that in many ways are a fiction, right? This is this is kind of like the bedrock of a lot of queer theory, of queer activism, and a lot of feminist theory as well, is that these things are fictions that are imposed on us or that we, you know, kind of uncritically adopt. And that drag is a way of, of yeah, both saying anyone can do these, but also anyone can do these because they shouldn't have power over us. We right, should be able right. to, to play and expand them and explode them in millions of different ways.
0: Yeah. I know that the listeners won't know this, but you have a magnificent beard. And I'm just kind of curious, <laughs> like, so clearly, I suspect you're not going, I, I don't know if you always have performed with a beard, if you've always had a beard, but like, you're not going for womanly realness, I think.
1: Well, I will say I almost always do shave my beard. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah, there's occasions um, where I've done bearded drag, usually, you know, for a particular effect or reason. But I do, maybe not to try to pass, but I do Mm -hmm. like to kind of uh, step into that high feminine, high camp glamour. Mm Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, in my everyday life, I, I identify as genderqueer, um, as sort of, you know, in between the gender binary in many ways. Um, and if anything, I, I would just say that my sort of everyday gender presentation is a little bit lazy. You know, I think part of... Part <laughs> same, of bro, drag, same. It, Yeah. I mean, it's... <laughs> putting on a face takes about two hours, and I, I don't have oh nearly God. that much time every day to get ready. Um, and in some ways, I sort of appreciate that contrast of like, yeah, this is my slightly schlubby everyday look, and then, you know, getting to really take the time to don the drag and to to go through that process of transformation. So yeah, I mean, and I, I would say, especially in, in recent years, again, as I've maybe kind of upgraded certain elements of my drag, and um, also as I've been performing more for children with Drag Story mm-hmm. Hour, you know, I've really thought about the looks as As wanting to go over the top, you know, as as wanting to be as shiny, as sparkly, as colorful, as clashy, you know, as as all these different things as much as possible, because I do think that that drag is partly about living this fantasy and being something that you don't get to be in everyday life. Uh, And so I don't want to just, you know, look like an everyday feminine person. I want to I want to really stand out.
0: Yeah, heighten the contradictions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Um, I know that there's a concept of, you know, the drag mother, the dra- you know, the, there's a very much a family tree of, of drag. And, and as yes. you're saying that, I'm, I'm sort of aware of the community of drag. Do you feel yourself part of a lineage of like someone who taught you to do drag that you've taught? Like how, to what extent is that myth and to what extent is it reality in, in your experience at least?
1: I think it varies a lot between performers and locations and even kind of styles of drag. I think Mm -hmm. there are some communities, especially ones that are more pageant oriented or yeah, in that kind of glamorous lineage where there tends to be a little bit more of that kind of family orientation. For me, I started doing drag again, you know, in this community of drag kings and then stepping into this kind of alternative drag scene in San Francisco. When I started, I didn't have any sort of official drag mother or drag family, uh, although I was maybe a year or two into performing, uh, adopted by my drag mother, oh. Jordan Lamour, um, who was a, another San Francisco legend. Uh, and we had both competed in this uh, Carol Channing impersonation contest that carol channing was supposed to judge and then she unfortunately broke her hip so she wasn't able to be there oh my God. and i believe jordan won but again i i think i did well and i sort of punched against my weight uh <laughs> and she i remember she was sort of like i'm probably going to regret this and you might regret it too but <laughs> if you want i'll be your drag mother I can probably teach you a few things, and and she did. I mean, she she gave me some advice. She lent me some outfits. You know, she's been a, a supportive presence in my life. But I but I think even beyond that, I've had a number of wonderful mentors. Uh, I always think of this one performer, Fatima, uh, who passed away a couple of years ago, as sort of my drag auntie. Uh, she was actually the first. Performer to paint a whole face for me and to really teach me a lot of those tricks that I hadn't fully learned. Yeah, and and I I have one official drag daughter uh, who I adopted uh, kind of in a similar way. Uh, who basically she bugged me until she wore me down, and I I said <laughs> yes. Um, and for a while in San Francisco, I also got to host a show for newcomers, and so I I mm-hmm. am proud to have played. You know a small hand and just kind of booking new talent and giving people a a space to explore and and test the waters
0: yeah wow that's lovely
2: we'll be back with more of june's conversation with little miss hot mess after this Hey, listeners, it's uh, Isaac Butler here. Hope you're doing well in this uh, lovely spring weather. Just a reminder, real quick, that if you are enjoying the show and haven't subscribed yet, uh, why don't you go ahead and hit that subscribe button right now? That way, you'll never miss an episode. We would also love for you to be a part of our show. And if you want to be a part of our show, here's how you do it write an email to working at slate.com or call us and leave a voicemail at 304 933 WORK. Ask us for some advice. Share a creative problem you're having. Talk about a creative triumph you've had. We just love hearing from our listeners. So again, that's uh, WorkingAtSlate.com or 304-933-W-O-R-K. All right.
0: Now back to June's conversation with Little Miss Hot Mess. I want to definitely talk about the books that you've written. Um, yes. Yes. You've written two, I believe, or you have you published two. Uh, if you're a drag queen and you know it, and the hips on the drag queen go swish, swish, swish. Uh, what was your motivation for writing those books? How did they come about? Like, how have they been received?
1: Well, I started working with Drag Story Hour in 2016, shortly after the program got started in San Francisco. Um, again, I had, I had just moved to New York, and so I was kind of watching all these drag friends of mine doing these fabulous events with children and really wanted to get in on the action. And so we eventually formed a chapter uh, in New York City. And yeah, eventually, you know, we were kind of just thinking about ways to to expand on the program, to give opportunities for kids who couldn't make it to the, these programs or, you know, to bring some of the magic of it home. And the first book, The Hips on the Drag Queen, goes swish, swish, swish. Uh, that really started as a song that I was singing to kids uh, or singing with kids at the events. And I honestly came up with most of that on a subway ride on the way to an event. You know, I was thinking, how do we, you know, we were already kind of singing some songs and doing some things beyond the readings, but I was just really thinking about how do we kind of dragify this? Like, how do we bring more (laughs) of that queer culture in? Um, And there's such a, a history of, drag parodies of popular music that, you know, I, I felt like that was an easy thing to do with the kids um, that could really kind of teach them something. And uh, you know, so I thought about popular kids songs and and the wheels on the bus. And a lot of it just I don't know, just really kind of <laughs> flowed out of me. And it was so fun to get to think about it and to, and to get to do it with kids and, you know, have them swish their hips and shimmy their <laughs> shoulders and mm-hmm. uh, shout, yes, queen, and all these sorts of things that I think for me as a kid would have felt both exciting and maybe a little bit risky or a little bit dangerous. You know, some of these are the things that I was teased for at various points in my life. Um, and so in many ways, too, I wanted to give kids an opportunity to do that in a safe space, to try out these things. For me, it's been such a treat to just see the ways that kids respond to this. You know, I've had so many parents write to me and say this is one of their kids' favorite books or kids have learned vocabulary through it. Kids have enjoyed doing the dances. Um, It's really just been a magical experience to see these out in the world.
0: So for anyone who doesn't know what Drag Story Hour is or has never been to a Drag Story Hour event, what are they like? What's it like to perform at one? What would you find at Drag Story Hour? I always say
1: Drag Story Hour is just what it sounds like. It is drag queens, drag kings, drag performers of all stripes reading books to kids in, you know, libraries, bookstores, sometimes schools, other community spaces. And in many ways it, it is like any other story hour or story time that parents bring their kids to, the main difference is that the reader, you know, is an over-the-top, super sparkly, larger-than-life performer. But, you know, we read books, we sing songs, uh, we sometimes shake our sillies out and do some dances. We might uh, do a craft activity or face painting. And I should also say that we we do read, you know, kind of fan favorites, read aloud favorites like Chicka Chicka Boom Boom or, you know, other other elements of uh, classic children's literature. But we do also try to bring in books that highlight LGBT history and culture or, um, you know, other cultures, uh, people of color, activists and and communities and celebrations, books that deal with, you know, uh, creative self-expression or standing up to bullies or finding your own voice. So, it's both kind of about having this fabulous performer uh, just in the space celebrating with children. And it's also a way to to talk about some of these deeper issues, but ones that are often in children's literature to begin with.
0: Yeah. I mean, obviously there has been, as we all know, some kind of pushback about it, but, you know, I used to think of drag as an exclusively nightlife activity, um, mm-hmm. you know, performing mostly in gay clubs or also the kind of, Vegas-style spectaculars. Mm-hmm. But that's obviously changed a lot in the last few years. Um, drag bingo became a big thing, raising mm-hmm. money for charities, mostly in the beginning at least, for AIDS and HIV causes. And more recently, Drag Story Hour. And I should say that I know you're on the board of Drag Story Hour. Yep. So that's taken off and it's really expanded the profile of drag. Um, is that accurate, do you think, and and Do you have a theory of why it has become just like more of a, just a mainstream thing?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. In some ways, when you look at the history of drag, there's always kind of waves. It's always a bit of a roller coaster. Um, You know, there have been many moments in history where drag has been... More mainstream than I think we've realized. Um, you know, moments during the Harlem Renaissance when many straight people would go to drag performances and cabarets and things like that. Um, in the later part, or mid to later part of the 20th century, you know, there were touring productions like the Jewel Box Review that, mm. you know, again were were pretty mainstream. I think this most recent wave, you know, we have to give credit where credit is due to you know, the Supreme Mother RuPaul um, for bringing drag to television. And, you know, I will say I've always been a little bit ambivalent about it. I, in many ways, think, I don't want to get myself in trouble, but I do think that (laughs) drag is often at its best when it is a little bit more underground, when it is more closely tied to queer and trans communities. You know, I think, I do think one of the joys of it is that it can be this welcoming, safe space for everyone. Um, but I've always been concerned that it would get so mainstream that it loses a little bit of its edginess. It loses a little bit of its punch, um, mm-hmm. and you know, and that's I've had some ambivalences about that in in doing Drag Story Hour. Um, maybe I'm fooling myself, but I I don't think that Drag Story Hour. Is fully proof that drag has gone mainstream. I think the fact that there is so much, you know, backlash and resistance mm-hmm. to it does mm-hmm. show that at least in many ways drag is still political, right? That it is still challenging a lot of our social norms and kind of upending many social conventions, which is what I think it's designed to do. And so, you know, I, I think we can do that in a way that is age appropriate and kid friendly. But, But mm-hmm. I also, you know, I want kids... I don't want kids to just think that drag is dress up and that it's pretty and that it's entertaining. I want them to know that it is disruptive and that it is about asking questions and imagining you know, a more just and fabulous world and that it, it, it does have teeth behind it as well.
0: Yeah. Um, you are not a full-time drag queen. You have a, a, a daytime life or maybe, a, <laughs> I don't know if that's actually accurate to say daytime life. You have another life yes. as an academic. I'm curious how Little Miss Hot Mess kind of fits into the rest of your life. How do you accommodate this larger than life persona in the middle of everything else? Oh,
1: it's a good question. I mean, yeah, these days it's like go, go, go on all cylinders with with all of the above. (laughs) And it's funny because, to be honest, you know, these days I haven't been performing uh, in the nightlife, so much, partly due to getting older, partly due to having some chronic health issues that mm. you know, make me have an earlier bedtime, um partly due to, yeah, the, my day job taking over more and more of my life. yeah, but i I would say that i've I've also, you know, integrated drag into my academic work. Um, for a long time, I really, I really wanted to keep these things separate, you know, i I felt like drag was my creative outlet. It was my joy. It was my, you know, fun and letting my freak flag fly kind of moment. Yeah. And I, I didn't want that to get sort of colonized by the demands of work. But in many ways, too, it was also drag that, that brought me back into academia. Oh. Uh, the kind of backstory of that is that I, um, in 2014, when I was still living in, in San Francisco, a bunch of us queens all either got kicked off of Facebook or suddenly had our legal names put on our profiles um, because we were all accused of, of yeah, using inauthentic names. Um, and so being good drag performers, you know, we protested at Facebook's headquarters and raised a ruckus and got all this media attention and got them to change the policy. And at the time, I had... I, I was sort of dabbling in academia um, and realized that I, I just had a lot of questions about, you know, what we could learn from this moment um, about not just demanding access to, you know a large social media platform, but also thinking critically about all the bad stuff that those social media platforms were doing. I mean, you know, Facebook guzzling up all of our data and selling it to the highest bidder. Um, and I was sort of interested in how drag performers, could teach us ways of being both highly visible and and very public, while also kind of obfuscating certain elements of our personal data and and maintaining certain elements of privacy through this kind of organic blend of of fact and fiction that yeah. you know we were so so good at doing, um, right. and so that that's what I wrote my you know PhD applications about, and and has turned into my. dissertation and now you know other forms of research and and as things like drag story hour uh, you know as i started becoming involved in them i've also written you know academic papers on drag story hour and the kind of pedagogy that it affords and what kids can learn so despite all those resistances i i found a way to to bring these things together in a way that that feels natural and and useful
0: yeah i'm curious um clearly, you know, it's not like your your drag life is over. That's clearly not true. But <laughs> no, no, no. I'm kind of curious, what's your drag ambition, you know, at this point in your life? It's really
1: kind of emergent. I mean, it's, I, I've never had a a set path or, or really a clear set of goals. I mean, I never thought I would be writing children's books or anything like <laughs> that. And so I, I've kind of just always said yes, whenever I can to different opportunities. And Hoped that they work out and yeah. and enjoy the where they've led. Um, and and honestly, one of the things you know, being in this kind of uncommon role of being both an academic and a drag queen. Although I should say, I'm not the only one. There are there are at least a handful of us out there, and I think really? even more in the making. Um, you know, I I like getting to be a little bit of a thought leader. I like getting to. To think about drag in a critical way and and to Mm -hmm. think about its cultural contributions um, in a way that I think many drag performers, you know, do sort of intuitively or organically, but I appreciate getting to spend the time on that. So, you know, I'm not, I've never wanted to go on Drag Race. Um, You know, I don't think I want that level of fame. I'm not trying to drop a single on iTunes or anything like that. Yeah, I just, I want to kind of just keep going where the path takes me.
0: Well, little Miss Hot Mess, thank you so much for spending some time with us on Working, uh, giving us a better understanding of drag. It's so nice to talk to you as always. Thank you so
1: much. And I should also just say, you know, drag is all about working it. So I'm (laughs) so glad to be on this podcast.
2: When we come back, June and I will talk about the importance of playfulness to the creative process. Stay tuned. No necessary necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. June. That was an incredible interview. <laughs> and. You know, I wanted to talk to you about a consistent theme I feel like I heard in this week's episode, which is how playfulness or whimsy, humor, fabulousness can be an important and subversive aspect of the creative process. Or as Little Miss Hot Mess said herself, drag can be, quote, a suit of sparkly armor that lets me get away with things, end quote. (laughs) Uh, Our default as creative people is to often think that serious things have to be serious. Uh, And sometimes that's fine. You know, sometimes that is what you need to do. But sometimes taking... something serious, particularly when that's a seriousness that's imposed on you, you know, particularly something that we take as seriously as the false gender binary and Mm. Republican efforts to impose it on the rest of us. You know, treating that kind of stuff with playfulness is actually a really effective strategy.
0: Yeah, that totally hit me too. I mean, playfulness can be Really hard to harness, but it's amazingly effective and also fun. You know, you need to be relaxed to invent things, and inventiveness and making interesting connections are important even in nonfiction writing. You know, as you know all too well, Isaac, I'm a bit of a productivity porn junkie. No idea what you're talking I, about, Jim. No idea. <laughs> and I find it very interesting how many books and videos and courses there are about ways to get deep work done. And how few there are on how to tap your inner whimsy.
2: Yes, indeed. Uh, we should also say, you know, you're currently writing a book that is a history of lesbian cultural life told through the spaces in which that life has lived. And I'm wondering where about the playfulness in your own story that you've discovered mm. in research. You know, one of my favorite, Examples of act ups activism, for example, you know, is when Peter Staley and some of his cohort unrolled a giant condom over Jesse Helms's house as a way of protesting Helms's homophobic and, and racist and, and anti people with AIDS uh, record and rhetoric. Um, you know, I, so I'm just wondering what's cropped up in, in your world of cultural history and political organizing on the on the lesbian side of humor and mischief and that, that being part of the life. Yeah,
0: that that is an amazing action, the the Jesse Helms action. There are so many fun accounts of it. And I think you're right that ACT UP was just incredibly effective at using silliness to bring attention to utterly tragic, utterly enraging situations. It's interesting, though, when I think of examples of playfulness and looseness and mischief in my book, quite often it's limited to the early stages of a project To offer some concrete examples, when Claire Kavanaugh and Rachel Venning first started Babeland, the feminist sex toy store, they were still in their 20s. They just had one store in Seattle's gayborhood. They were serious about their business. I mean, Rachel had an MBA. This was their livelihood. But they were just obviously having lots and lots and lots of fun with it. They did silly ads, like a print ad that had the slogan, come in early and beat the crowds next to a drawing of a flogger. (laughs) But as they expanded and opened more stores and employed more people and had more on the line, eh, you know, it's harder to get in touch with that kind of friskiness. You know, you're kind of compelled to be more measured and considered and kind of boring.
2: Part of what you're describing there is institutionalization, right? You have something that's a, a I don't want to use the term startup because that's been colonized by the worst people <laughs> on earth. but you have something that's in its nascent early stages, let's say, right? Yeah, and then eventually, though, it becomes institutionalized and and yeah. if it's successful. and an institution, part of what makes something an institution is that it exists for its own. Uh, propagation and yeah. survival yep. and growth and yep. those become as if not more important than the original mission. So how mm-hmm. you keep your eye on those original core values once you hit the institutionalization phases is, is a really complex puzzle that I think yep. most people fail to solve. Yeah. Um, do you think of playfulness as part of your creative process? Because like, I'll be honest, that's something I struggle with personally. Like, like I'm a pretty funny guy. It's not that there's no <laughs> jokes in my writing or whatever, but right. I'm rarely like uh, you know, putting on a clown nose and <laughs> juggling before I sit down to write or, you know, something yeah. like that.
0: No, totally. I I definitely struggle with that. I for example, I was a terrible headline writer. And people would always be like surprised by that. They'd be like, oh, but you're such a funny person, which, you know, thanks. Thank you, really. But I always find it really hard to like tap into humor when I was sitting there trying to write a damn headline so I could file a piece. You know, it's it's more about the mechanics of activating a sort of free associative part of your mind when you're in the middle of a serious task. You know, it's not just about task switching, but mode switching that's really difficult. Mm. and But there are a couple of ways I've tried to use play in my work. The first is making zines. Like I am not an accomplished artist and I don't really try to be, but sitting down and, and combining little drawings with a few words, it can be very freeing and very fun, which I think is important. And Sometimes if I'm stuck, I'll think like, what about this topic? Um, Feminist sex toy stores, for example, would make a fun zine. And that can help me kind of generate lighter ideas, get out of my, I am sitting here typing and thinking really important thoughts kind of mode. So one tactic is doing something you don't think you're good at, but that you really enjoy. Mm. And if I'm really stuck, I'll stop trying to write the big, scary, real thing and just tell myself to write down some thoughts, any thoughts about the topic, not necessarily for use in the chapter or the article that I'm working on, but just kind of off the top of my head. Again, I think that can help get out of the I'm a serious writer kind of stiffness that you can mm-hmm. get into. Is that the issue that you're talking about, like feeling kind of stiff? And, and... Yeah,
2: or just, you know, how to remain loose and playful so that maybe yeah. uh, a non-intuitive idea... Yes. will kind of come up and whether you use it or not, you know, just staying in that loose, creative flow state yep. in a yep. fun way. And I'm also wondering, you know, since our guest this week was a drag performer, you know, what we can learn from drag because drag is where people have a wonderful sense of fun and playfulness and fabulousness in, in the work. And how can we be more fabulous? How can our listeners be more fabulous? I'm, <laughs> I'm wondering what your thoughts on that are.
0: So for me, I think it's, what I take from drag performers are the ease with which they kind of take on multiple personas or multiple persona. You know, you can be a serious writer. I am a serious writer, but you can also be a self-promoter and you can be a proselytizer for a subject. You can be a goofball to draw people into a serious subject. And taking on a silly persona for a specific purpose doesn't undermine your serious writing cred. So just kind of, you know... You're not undermining yourself, I guess, is the thing. You're, you're just let getting in touch with another part of yourself.
2: That is great. You know, I think it's also worth keeping in mind in the midst of this, because Little Miss Hot Mess talked about it, is the subversiveness. That, mm-hmm, you know, this isn't mm-hmm. playfulness just for its own sake. There's a subversive quality to that. And she yes. seems, in fact, quite worried about drag becoming too mainstream and not subversive enough and you know this is an anxiety that has come up a lot in queer culture over the course of my lifetime right Mm -hmm. many of the people i interviewed for the world only spins forward the book i co-wrote about angels in america spoke quite eloquently about this, um, particularly of an older generation, right? Once society is more accepting, that can create a kind of crisis because, well, first of all, your identity is partly built on that outsiderdom. And also there is real power and wisdom and succor and creativity Mm -hmm. and family to come from that outsider position. I'm wondering how the subjects in your book confronted these questions and how, how that's changed or shaped your thinking about it lately.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that question of how we can keep drawing on the creativity and the strength that can emerge from a liberation struggle, effectively feeling you have to fight to live as your authentic self, you know, when we perhaps temporarily have access to the mainstream, you know, that's maybe the most basic dilemma of queer creative culture, I think. But I think in my book, it often became a business question. You know, women might say, We have a mission. We want to provide a space where lesbians can gather, a place that's different in some significant way from existing place X or existing place Y. So we're going to open a bookstore or a restaurant or we're going to go off into the woods and separate from society. You know, that's the impulse. But it's so hard. and figuring out how to find a place where you're happy, where you feel that you're being creative, that you're not being oppressed, that you're fulfilling your life's mission. And not being destroyed by the massive degree of difficulty. It's really hard. And I kind of wonder if what I'm about to say has a parallel in the world of theatre. But one of the repeating patterns in basically all the places I talked about was that women really wanted to start a nonprofit project. It wasn't about making money for them, but they couldn't find a way to survive as a nonprofit. So you have to engage with capitalism and start a business. And combining capitalism with integrity. It's just, again, really, really hard. Or you can go off into the woods and separate yourself entirely and really mostly that way madness lies. So... Do you have any kind of experience of this? Yeah. I mean, I think this is also... You You see a
2: very similar debate happening within in Jewish culture in the mid-20th mm-hmm. century, you know, as, mm-hmm. as assimilation to whiteness is suddenly on the table because of the GI Bill and, you know, America's understandable horror at the Holocaust and, you know, wanting to do something about anti-Semitism within its own shores. And you see a very similar thing like, oh, are you not... You know, who are you going to get married to? What names are your kids going to have? You know, what what language are you speaking in your home? And also, you know, are you losing the Jewish sensibility of your art or of your music or whatever? Um, So I do think that that is a, you know, it's it's a struggle that happens with every kind of out group as it suddenly finds itself with at least some provisional acceptance into the mainstream. Right. In terms of theaters, I mean, it's just true of arts nonprofits in general. It goes back to institutionalization. You know, once you reach a point where you have a bunch of people on the payroll, you know, you're responsible to these people. It's actually totally understandable. It's not just about Corruption, although capitalism does corrupt everything. But, you know, Mm -hmm. once suddenly, you know, having a nonprofit status means you're supposed to be a mission driven organization. The mission is actually a legal thing that you file when you incorporate, Mm -hmm. is the mission of that nonprofit. And the board is supposed to be there to help make you financially sustainable, but also to keep you on mission and blah, 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 blah. And what often happens to these large nonprofits is really what they are is the same thing as a commercial venture they're just taxed differently and they have a different revenue stream in the form of donations and um that's dangerous i think that's dangerous to the art form and and harmful ultimately we need spaces where things can exist that don't have to make money that is vanishing more and more day to day i think
0: hey but listeners stay creative keep hope alive
2: (laughs) exactly say listeners it's up to you to solve this (laughs) Well, that is all the time we have today. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of Working. If you have, please don't forget to subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. Or, and... And slash or subscribe to Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash working plus today. Sign up to get full access behind the paywall. Bonus segments on shows like this one. Complete exclusive episodes just for Slate Plus listeners. It's really a, an, an abondanza of goodies that you could get today at slate.com slash working plus. June, did I use abondanza correctly?
0: I have no idea. Not All one right. of my languages, but it sounded amazing.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you to Lil Miss Hot Mess for being our guest this week and to our amazing producer, Cameron Drews. Join us next week for Karen's conversation with stand-up comic and writer, Josh Gondelman. Until then, get back to work.